We are now going to, we're going to get started this morning, and if you are in this class, you're in the Young Adult Bible Fellowship class. I think that's what we're calling them, Bible Fellowship classes. Uh, you call it, you can call it Sunday school, that's fine. But we're trying to bring in a new name, so it's going to be Bible Fellowship classes, I think. I think that's what it's supposed to be. But for the next several weeks, and I mean several, because the last time we did this series, we're doing the relationship series. The last time we did it, it was 12 weeks, and I have even more to say than I did four years ago. So it's going to be longer. Um, I was asked by several people uh, pretty regularly for the last, I would say the last two years, Derek, can you do the relationship series again? And so I'm doing it out of, I, I, I wanted to do it, but I'm also doing it because several of you thought it would be good to do it again. And there are some of you who didn't hear it four years ago. In fact, a number of you who didn't hear it four years ago. So that's what we're doing for the next several weeks. More than 12, likely. We are going to talk about relationships in the church. Singleness, marriage, dating, courtship, manhood, womanhood, romance. Did I already said that? More romance. Um, we're going to... I, had all, I already had you guys submit several questions that I, I took all, so that all the questions were compiled in that survey, they were given to me, and I took them and I weaved them in all through, and I'm still creating the, um, the, the, uh, the messages, so I'm weaving them all through the messages so that all the questions that were submitted in that survey will be answered. Either they'll be answered very directly by saying, this is a question and here's the answer, or the answer will be weaved into the, the material itself, okay? And if you have questions now, you're thinking, hey, I, I didn't get to submit a question, then email them to me or uh, let me know and we'll make sure that they get answered. Because there's a lot of practical questions that have already been asked about dating and singleness and friendships and all this stuff. So we're going to try to cover it all, all right? So handouts will always be up here. We're going to have pens. So hand, grab a handout, grab a pen. When you come in, we'll open in prayer. We'll do our Bible study, and we'll be done right at 10. Uh, Pre-COVID, we had an hour and 15 minutes. Now we're just going to have an hour. We're going to go from 9 to 10, and so we need to come right in. We can have a few minutes to talk, then we'll pray, and then we'll get right into things. And this is supposed to be different than the Sunday morning worship service, so this is going to be interactive. Uh, you guys have desks, so you can you know spread out and write notes and all that stuff, and and uh, I'll, I'll see if you have questions. We'll kind of stop at each section and see what questions that you have, but this is meant to be interactive as well, kind of like Friday nights. All right. So let me pray, and then we will get started. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. What a beautiful morning it is. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the saints that you've brought to gather together. Thank you for the unity that you provide us in the Spirit. Help us to preserve that unity that you've already created. God, I pray that you now bless not only this message, but the whole series as we consider something that's central to our lives as Christians, and that's relationships that we have with other believers, even relationships that we have with unbelievers, God, in, in issues of friendship, issues of romance, issues of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and how to glorify you in our distinct genders. And so, God, I just ask that you would please bless this study. Please bless this morning. And God, I pray that you'd open our ears to hear your word, that you plant your uh, the seed of your word deep into our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, everybody have one of these? 
I'll, I'll just, there's a few more. Pass it around, go ahead. Need one. All right, so here's, I want to give us a roadmap to where we're going, big picture. So I've created, yeah, you can see them there. I've created seven lessons, okay? Now, each lesson will have multiple messages in it, but we're going to break them up into lessons, okay? First lesson is going to be talking specifically about the beauty. You can see it on, on the top of your page. The beauty of complementary image bearers. God made them male and female. I want us to leave today and after each message in this lesson with an appreciation for the two distinct genders that God has created. That as men, we would appreciate the female gender. And as women, we would, you would appreciate the, the male gender and what God has built into these distinct genders for our joy and for his glory. And then we're going to talk specifically uh, about a the biblical theology of marriage. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go to Revelation to understand what the whole scripture teaches in its un unfolding storyline about marriage. And then we'll do a message on, or a lesson on singleness, a biblical theology of singleness. We'll do the exact same thing, Genesis to Revelation on singleness. And then we'll do, in, with that series, or that uh, lesson, we will do a specific study, a detailed study on 1 Corinthians 7, singleness and marriage, and what Paul says about that in light of Christ's coming and in light of the impending end of the age. He has an important things to say about that. And then we'll talk about what it means to be a man pursuing godly masculinity in light of our relationship with God and relationship with others. And that will be a lesson, multiple messages. And then we'll do the same thing uh, for womanhood. We'll talk about what it means to be a woman in light of, our, in light of your relationship with, with Christ and with others. And then we'll talk about godly and gospel-centered friendships that you have within the church and what that is to look like and should look like. And then finally, we'll end with uh, um, messages on romance and cultivating healthy romantic relationships if the Lord so leads in that direction, okay? So we've got a lot to talk about. And what I don't want you to do, and this is important because like I've said, the questions that you submitted to me are going to be weaved all throughout the messages. And what I don't want you to do is be like, well, you know, it doesn't really get to the good stuff, namely romance, until the last le lesson. And so I'm going to just check out, or maybe I won't even come until then. And that would be a big, big mistake. Because everything that we say in the last lesson about romance will be, have, will be the, the natural fruit of what we've already said in all the other lessons. We have to build up to that. And not only that, but things related to romance and singleness and, and sex and purity and those kinds of things are going to be all interweaved through the other messages. So you want to, you want to be patient. You want to, you want to work with me through all the biblical material. You want to hear it all, you want to absorb it all, so that when we get to that final set of messages, you'll be able to understand it in its biblical setting. And we have to do a lot of this work because of our current cultural setting and all the things that we are constantly hearing about these topics, about manhood, about womanhood, about gender, about sexuality, about dating, about romance, and what that all should look like, about marriage. And so we really need to dig deep into our uh, and, and really dig our, our theological footings very deeply so that we're not swayed to and fro by the, the culture, which is very easy to do. I might, it's very easy to be swayed by the culture, I must admit. Okay, so let's begin, shall we? So 
Let's look at our sheets. We're going to begin as Christians. We're going to begin this series as Christians. So we're coming to the study of Gen- even Genesis 1, when we're going to look at how God created man and woman. We're coming already with assumptions about what marriage ultimately leads to. We, we have assumptions about, we already have knowledge about what the creation leads to, what the end goal is. And that's important to understand as we come to talk about these issues because God has given us revelation in the New Testament now that Christ has come that informs our understanding of a foundational text like Genesis. Because we're going to, in a second, begin at the beginning. But we don't go there without the assumption that we know Christ and we know the revelation of the New Testament and the things that are taught about marriage and singleness and romance already in the New Testament. So we begin as Christians, but then we also have to begin at the beginning, which is what we're going to do. So let's turn over to Genesis chapter 1. And this is a, a, a series of texts in Genesis that we will go back to continually in our study. And I don't want you to grow tired, <clears throat> grow tired of it. We shouldn't grow tired of Genesis. I, in, all, in all seriousness, I see new things and make new observations in the book of Genesis most of the time I go back to it, and I hope that is, a, the, that is true for you. That you be, you, when you go there and you're reading text over and over again, you begin to see things that you didn't see before, and you gain insights that you didn't see before. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are absolutely foundational for understanding who we are as created in the image of God, and who we are as man and woman, and who we are as man and woman in relation to one another. And the word at the, in the title is intentional. God has created something beautiful in creating man and woman. And in saying that God has created something beautiful in creating man and woman is even presently countercultural right now, isn't it? Because you have, a, a, and we'll talk in more detail about this, in fact, this Next Sunday and the following Sunday, I'm going to give two messages specifically on our present transgender moment. So, um, so we're, I'm even interweaving things here into that message and back and forth and so on. So we'll talk specifically about that even in those messages. But, but to say something like God has created distinctly male and distinctly f- female, and he's created males to be distinctly masculine and women to be distinctly feminine, and then that's beautiful and that's good and there should be appreciation for each uh, one, for one gender to the other and vice versa is even countercultural. And yet it is the reality that God has weaved into the fabric of our existence. We are created male and female and it is very good. Okay, so that's where we're going to start. So let's look in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and following. It says this, this is creation. God has created, and here at CBC, we take this account to be how it happened. It unfolded in, in six actual days, six literal days, you might say. This is a description of how the creation came about. And this is the sixth day, and God is going to create. He's created everything. He's created the universe, the earth, everything in the earth. He's created plants. Now he's created animals. Now he's going to create the crowning jewel of his creation, verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over 
all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given every plant to you, uh, uh, yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, you sh and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And those of you who know the creation account well, you know that God beheld what he had made previously in each day, and he would say that it was good. He created something and it was good. He created light and it was good. He created plants and animals. It was good. And now he says that it was very good. Why? Because he has just put his image on the earth. He has just created man and woman. And now behold, it is very good. There is beauty here. There's complementarity. What do we see? There's the five points here in your uh, outline. What do we see in this text? God created man and woman in his image and likeness. The man and woman are in God's image. That means we are like him in a significant sense, though very much unlike him because he is creator and we are creatures. So there's always a hard and fast creator-creature distinction. He is infinite. We are finite. Yet we are his image bearers. We are like him. We are to reflect him. We are to be like him. We are to represent him. That was the plan for God to put his image on the earth to be reflected and glorified in that image and for that image to multiply into the billions all over the earth. We are to be his representative and to reflect him. We are his vice regents, you might say, his vice rulers. Number two, man and woman are to have dominion over non-image bearing creatures, which is all other creatures. And even this is countercultural, right? If you have a pantheistic worldview or an evolutionary worldview, there's no really hard and fast distinction between animals and humans. Yet, biblically, we have the grounds for human dignity, don't we? There, there really is no basis for human dignity in an evolutionary worldview. But in a Christian worldview, in a biblical worldview, there is because you say that there are creatures, and among those creatures, there are image bearers who image Fourth, God, who are made and have a, a characteristic fundamentally different than that of the other creatures, namely the animals. And because you're created in uh, God's image, each person is worthy of respect and honor. There's beauty in the differences that God has created, and so on. So God creates a man and woman to be have dominion over the image bearers because they are image bearers and those other creatures are not. And so we are to rule over the animals. We are to rule over this world. And that's what God has said here in that passage. Uh, Jesus will affirm in the New Testament that image bearers, that humans have more value than the animals. And the Bible values animals. In fact, Proverbs 12 talks about a righteous man actually caring for the life of his beast. And so Christians will have something to say about caring well for other animals and even caring well for the environment. But nevertheless, we are the ones who rule over them and we make them useful to ourselves. Animals are created for humans, not the other way around, because we are 
image bearers. We are God's image bearers. And our job is to exercise dominion, to have rulership. That's what those words mean. Verse uh, 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and so on. Number three, mankind is male and female. We've already noted that. That's key to our study. That's why I wanted to start here. Humankind is male and female. And isn't it wonderful that we are? I mean, I praise God that it's not all men. Oh my goodness, what a nightmare that would be, right? For various reasons, but because women add so much, I mean, just sisters and wives and moms, and I just, we could not go, well, we literally couldn't go on, right? I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't multiply. But what a beautiful and good thing that God has created. He, got, he created male and female. There's balance, there's complementarity, as we'll talk about, and there is difference. There is sameness. We are both image bearers, yet there is beautiful, glorious, wonderful <coughs> difference that we should enjoy and appreciate and exalt and so on. So we'll talk about that. So what we're doing is I'm setting us up for the later messages on manhood and womanhood. Because I really want us to not only be to thank God for our individual genders, our individual sex, our individual gender, to be thankful that I'm a man. Thank, thank you, God, for making me a man. And then you can say as a woman, thank God for making me a woman. I, I love being a woman. But then also to turn around and be able to say, thank you, God, for creating men if you're a woman. Or thank you, God, for creating women if you are a man. So that's number three. Mankind is male and female. Number four, the male and female image bearers are to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. This was the design. This was the goal for God to spread his glory. His glory would be spread through image bearers, images. In fact, I say image bearers, and I don't know if that's a strong enough word. It's almost kind of like God created something and then stuck the image on top of it. That's not what the text says. We are his images. So it's, it's actually stronger and maybe even more biblically accurate to say we are, we are his images. But if I say image bearers, it's just because I'm so used to saying it. But the male and female images are to be fruitful and multiply over the earth. Uh, the word subdue here, uh, he says in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply the earth, and subdue it. The word subdue has to do with the woman and the man and the woman multiplying themselves across the world in order to make it useful to other image bearers. So God has given this world, it's incredibly rich in resources, and we are to make it useful for one another. That's God's grand design. In creation, that we would, there would be a mutual interdependence of, of, of all these image bearers working, providing, not only for themselves, but able to provide for others and to subdue this earth. Number five, the creation of male and female, we've already noted, was very good. It was very good. I just want you to think about that. Your me maleness or your femaleness is a gift from God, and it's very good. And there are so many people that need to hear that today, don't they? L listen to this wonderful text. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. If you're a man, that is wonderful. If you're a woman, that's even better. No, I'm just saying, I'm just kidding. If you're, if you're a man, that's wonderful. If you're a woman, that is wonderful. 
But God gives us more detail as what happened on the, the sixth day. So here's what I want us to understand. Genesis 1 is God explaining the creation account, day one to day six. What has become kind of common academic, the common academic view is that Genesis 2 is a totally different creation account. And that you have two different creation accounts. And it really doesn't matter anyways because it's both myth- they're both mythological and they're just kind of giving you an idea of kind of what maybe may have happened. But we all know due to, uh, thanks, thanks to a neo-Darwinian worldview, we all really know what happened. It was an evolutionary process. And this is just kind of explaining what God may have, or what God did to bring things about. But it's not really important anyways because we look to other areas, namely science, to tell us what happened in, uh, in, our, in terms of our human origins. Again, we reject that view here at this church. We believe that Genesis 1 and 2 tell ex- exactly what truly did happen. Genesis 2 is a detailed explanation of what happened on day 6. So Genesis 1 is a broad, wide-angle lens, and then Genesis 2 is zooming in and saying this is what happened specifically on that sixth day. Why would you need to zoom in specifically on day six? And again, this is just emphasizing the distinction between image bearers and non-image bearers. Why would you zoom in on day six? Because it was very good. Because it was very good, exactly. We need to know about these image bearers. From this point onward, the story of redemption will focus on mankind, not the animals, although animals will play a part. And as we know, animals will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. So we're going to have animals. So if you guys are worried about, you know, you grew up with a dog and you love dogs and you hope that there'll be domesticated dogs. And I don't know if there'll be domesticated dogs, but I do know that there will be animals. And and so don't worry, there's going to be animals in the new heavens and new earth. Let's look down here in verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet, yet sprung up. And those words are distinguishing, uh, the, uh, are distinguishing those plants from the plants that God had already brought forth. These are plants that are going to require cultivation from the man. And he's, he'll mention that. He, he says, For the Lord God had not caused the rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And I can't say that without... So we're memorizing scripture at the dinner table at, at home and after every meal, Amy will have one of the kids go get the box of verses. She'll open it up and we'll go through our verses. She's got this system. And I don't know how it happened, but this was one of the verses and this is how the kids do it now. They just, in fact, they, they look forward to it because of, and to see how loud they can get. They go like, it goes like this. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And you can just see Ellie doing this. <laughs> that's how they do it now. So anytime I read that passage, if I start to kind of break into that cadence, that's why. <laughs> because that's what the kids do. So they scream it and the windows are open and we don't know what the neighbors are thinking, but 
But it's a vital verse, and I'm glad they're memorizing because this is this is how God formed me. Remember, Genesis, Genesis one is that was a, a a summary, a succinct statement of what happened. He created the male and female. But what we see here is God creates the man. What? First, He formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, let's see here. Where do we want to go from here? All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made this, uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the uh, sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now he's going to kind of give a description of where geographically this place was. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon. And it is the one that flowed uh, around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, river is the Tigris, which flows around the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now I want us to focus on those two words. The word work has to do with cultivating, tilling, but it also has to do with, in fact, it has this connotation. Actually, it's not a connotation. It's a direct denotation throughout the Old Testament. This word is used to refer to people, men and women, serving the Lord. This word work. And the reason I think that's significant is because God originally created it so that your work of subduing and exercising dominion would be how you serve him. But we think about serving how? How do we serve God? Well, I serve God in, in children's Sunday school. I serve God on the worship team. I serve God on a missions trip. I serve God in a Bible study. I serve God in evangelism. And we, we only conceive of serving God in these very narrow church-related activities. When in reality, God created us to exercise dominion, so a, a significant part of us serving God is actually carrying out our calling, whatever that might be, whether that's in the, in the field as an engineer, whether that's home as a mommy, whether that's a teacher, wh whatever it might be. You serve God at your work. And that's encouraging, and this is a, would be a whole other study, and we've done this before, but that's encouraging because you're going to spend a lot of time at work. So to just think that I'm only serving God when I'm just on an hour on Sunday, well, that could be depressing, because then you've got to go do 50 hours of stuff that, well, I don't know if this is really serving God, right? But in fact, God creates us to work it, work the garden and keep it. This word work is used with reference to serving the Lord throughout the Old Testament, and I don't believe that word use is coincidental. The word keep here means to guard in other contexts, guarding the king, for example. So I think here this is an indication that Adam's job was to work the garden, to cultivate it, to organize things, to start subduing the earth, making it useful. It had potential, but that potential needed to be brought out, right? We know that. We just know that. We see that's how the, the world has been created. We have, to, we have to dig into the world to bring out the resources that are there. So the world has potential. We need to bring it out. And this is what the job of the man was. And to keep it, he was to guard it from intruders, which implies what? There's going to be an intruder, right? 
work it, and to keep it. And here we have, I'm going to argue it's going to begin here, and it's going to go over into our study of manhood. You have here the foundations for man's role as provider, protector, and now let's talk about this idea of him being, um, well, protector, provider, and then we'll talk about leader in a moment. But first, I want us to see here the, the commandment in verse 16. So in verse 15, we have this, the man is there. The woman has not been created yet. God is giving these instructions to the man. He is to work the garden. He is to protect the garden. And he gives them the commandment. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if I were to ask you before I even read that verse, what was the first commandment that God gave humankind? And you would, might have said, be fruitful and multiply. And I'd have said, okay, that's fine. But what's the first, first commandment? Because now we know that actually the man was created first before they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And you would have said, I wonder if you would have said, well, if you've been with me any length of time, you know what the answer is. But if you haven't heard this question before and I asked you, what was the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve? You may have said, do not eat of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. That's not the first command. You began with a negative. And Satan would love for you to begin with a negative. Satan would love for you to think of God as beginning with a prohibition. That, that's, that's, he's already working. He's, you are, if that was your first answer, then you are, you are still breathing that lie-tainted air that Satan introduced into the atmosphere 6,000 years ago. If you think that God begins with a prohibition, he doesn't begin with a prohibition. The first commandment, or the first part of the first commandment is you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Enjoy it all. There's an incredible abundance that you can't even begin to fathom. Enjoy it all. And I'm only prohibiting one small fraction of the creation. You can have it all. It's all yours. It's all yours. Just one small fraction. It's this tree over here. You may not eat from that one or you'll surely die. And that's vital because Satan's going to come in and try to persuade Adam and Eve that God is a sad, miserable, stingy God who doesn't want his people to enjoy the creation that he's made and that he's going to trip them up to think that God is not good when in fact the first, and he's doing it he's doing it to you and he's doing it to me the first command that God gives is positive enjoy the creation that I've given you we got to use that truth to uh, to to fight back against Satan's lies that add, uh, that God is some sort of um, prohibitor of good things. All right, let's see. I want to see where I get to this idea of leadership in the story here. We will just, we'll just, oh yeah, we get there soon. Okay, let's, let's keep going. So God gives, he puts the man into the garden to work it, to keep it. He gives him the, the instruction, the spiritual instruction, which I think is an indication that man and this will be borne out later in the narrative that man bears the weight of, of um, providing the woman with, with, with spiritual instruction, in this case, his wife. And that's going to be reaffirmed in Ephesians chapter 5. He was given the instruction. And, and 
it's assumed that he would have then given it to her and she would have understood what the Lord required. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Wait, what? Wait a second. Why is this a stunning statement? Pardon? God was there. God was there. God's there with Adam. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Does that stir anybody up? Man needs another image bearer. And again, this explodes the notion that we can somehow have a relationship with God on our own without the help of others and the, the church and so on. No, it's not good for man to be alone, even if God is there, right? So he's going to do something. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Well, he won't be able to carry out his calling to multiply on the earth. He won't be able to call, carry out his calling to subdue the earth if he's alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So here's what he's going to do. So verse 19, he says, now out of the ground the Lord, the Lord God had formed, that's an important tense there, had formed, every beast of the field, because we know that that happened previous to man's creation, of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man. So what? this is the order, this is chronology, and this fits with Genesis 1. God creates the animals, he had formed them, he creates the man out of the dust of the ground, and now he's going to parade the animals in front of Adam to see what he's going to call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave name to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. Was this just to get Adam to name the animals, which is an important part of his exercising dominion? Was, was, it, was that the goal here? Well, that was, that, was, that was a small part of it. The main intention here was to get Adam to recognize for himself, as he looked around the creation, he's like, horses are pretty cool, and so are monkeys. But... There, still, there's not anyone here that can really help me out with what I need to be doing. He, God wanted Adam to recognize that for himself. That's why it says, I'm not, I'm not making that up, um, it, but for Adam there was, or the man, there was not a, a, found a helper fit for him. So God brings out the animals so that Adam will recognize himself that there is not someone here that is fit for him, that is suitable for him, that is like him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed it up uh, the flesh uh, closed up the place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man and let's just stop right there God has created the man first he creates him out of the dust of the ground he needs a helper so he, that's fit for him. So it's not going to come from the animals. It needs to come from him. Puts him to sleep, pulls out. The word can be rib or can be just mean whole side. It could have just chunk a, took a chunk out of his side. Takes out this chunk of, out of Adam's side and forms that chunk into a woman to be his helper. Now this word helper is a strong word. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself helping Israel in all their trouble. 
So this is someone who is going to be competent, skillful, truly helpful. This is someone who's going to fill in where he is lacking. Male and female, complementarity. Adam cannot do it on his own. He does not have all that it takes. I mean, at the very basic, he doesn't have all that it takes to what? Reproduce, right? But the woman's going to add a lot more than just reproductive ability. She is going to bring um, skills and competencies. She's going to bring femininity. She's going to bring ideas and things that he doesn't even recognize. And she's going to bring so much to be his helper. So this word helper is a strong, strong word. And what happens now that the Lord God had taken the rib, the side that the man had made and into a woman and brought her to the man. What's going to happen now? This is the man's response and it's beautiful. It's poetic. That's why it's, it's probably indented differently in your Bibles because it's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. This is how Adam responded. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So remember, he looked around at the animals. None of these are, none of these are like me. So this isn't going to work. Horses are cool, but horses is not like me. But this one, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, or she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She is the same, but she is different and amazingly, wonderfully, gloriously, beautifully different. And his heart is just thrilled at this woman. He is enchanted by her. He is drawn to her. She has been taken from him. So now he's drawn to be back. She is, he is drawn to her to be back one with her. He is enthralled. He is enchanted. She is different. They are both 100% image bearers. In their ontology, Neither one is superior or inferior. They are equal. One is not 85% image bearer and the other one is 100% image bearer. They are both image bearers. They are both God's image. Yet they're at the uh, very fundamental aspect of who they are. There is difference. And that difference has just thrilled Adam. He just is. I just wonder what it would have been like that first moment of, of beholding uh, Eve and without sin, without lust welling up, but just beholding her in all of her beauty. It just must have been just been utterly amazing. And not only her physical beauty, but being able to behold, this is someone who's truly different. And as we'll see, more than just physically different, but not less than physically different. The first thing we need to notice is that the man and the woman have a sexual complementarity. That's why he says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they fit together sexually. They're meant to be together. And that's a good thing. It's a good and beautiful sexual complementarity that uh, Scripture says in man's unfallen state, the man and the woman, the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. And depending on how you grew up, depending on your past, depending on maybe abuse that you've suffered, it's hard to hear that. 
that you can't even begin to think of that. That's, it's hard for you to even conceive that that can be the case. Yet it was the case for man and woman in their unfallen state, and it is and can be the case as God, as Christ redeems to a sinful man and a sinful woman, cleanses their consciences, and begins to form in them right affections about their spouse. This kind of thing can happen in Christian marriages. And it's a beautiful and it's a good thing. Marital nakedness, I'm just going to, let's just, we need to, we're, it's going to, we're going to go through the whole scriptures and, and see what they say about all these things. And I want us to hear what they say. Marital nakedness, intimacy, sexual oneness were all created good and are still fundamentally good. Paul even says that in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And anyone who denies that is someone who's toying with doctrines of demons. Now, if you have, due to your past, if you struggle with these things, I understand that. And so does scripture, but you can be redeemed. You're, even your affections, even your feelings can be redeemed by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, this is an important piece because the sexual complementarity will, complementarity will also bear itself out in other differences, other complementary differences. Okay? Complement. Meaning, I'm made a certain way and I have certain strengths and certain deficiencies that the woman can fill in. So that together we are stronger. Together we can carry out God's role in our, our, our command and creation. But here's an important piece. So let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remember I said that Genesis 2.15 gave us the grounds to see the man's role as protector, provider. You see the provider in the working. And you see the, the protector in the keeping. Now Paul is going to look back on that creation account and there's gonna, he's going to see something very important about the order of creation. Okay? The order, this is, not, this is not just kind of poetic flourish on Moses' part, you know, he's, or this isn't just the way God decided to do it because it would work best this way. No, God created the man first to designate something specific. Not superiority. God did not create the man first to designate superiority. He created him first to designate something about his role, something about his manhood in relation to the woman. Not superiority, but leadership. Okay? And this is what Paul says. He says in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And right in the context of 1 Timothy 3, he is likely talking about the role of elder pastor. That's reserved for man. The, the men have been designated by God to be the leaders and teachers in Christ's church in relation to women. Now, women can be teachers to other women. We know that in Titus 2, but in terms of the whole church and in relation to women, men are to be the teachers and leaders of the, the church. Now, Paul doesn't say something like, because that works really good, or because I like that, or because that reflects the culture that we're in. 
Why, where does Paul ground that instruction? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's where. So apparently, in the way, in the order that God created the man and the woman, the man first and then the woman was to designate that the man is to be the leader in relation to the woman. And we're going to talk all about what leadership means. Because again, based, depending on your background, you may hear that and just fierce goes through your heart. And all you can think about is abusive, overbearing, mean men, dads, brothers, employers, I don't know. And so you just hear that word leadership and you're like. And so we need to see what does true godly leadership look like that God has always intended. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But nevertheless, Paul is grounding this idea of leadership in the order of creation. Adam was first born first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She was deceived by Satan. Oh, and by the way, that was all Adam's fault. <laughs> but nevertheless, she was deceived. Adam took of the, the fruit knowingly. So I, I, I want us to see that because we need Paul's inspired interpretation of the Genesis account to see that there's something significant in the creation order, namely that man is to be the leader in his relation to, to a woman. If he's a good leader, if he's a godly leader, if he's a happy leader, if he's a gentle leader, if he's an, a, a decisive leader, guess what? The women in his life are going to be very happy. And they're going to flourish spiritually. They're going to bear fruit spiritually. So it's not meant to be some sort of hard restriction against the woman. It's meant to, be, it's meant to honor God's design so that both the man and the woman will bear fruit and the whole community and the marriage will be... Uh, happy and fruitful. Um, we don't, I don't want to get into this because this is for another sermon altogether, another, another time altogether. But some of, and this, we'll talk about this more when we get to biblical manhood and womanhood, but some have said this only applies to the church and only applies to Christian marriages. And I would concede and say, well, that's true. You know, God did not, God is not giving commands to how Google should be run or how HP should be run, or how such and such school should be run, okay? That's true. However, Paul, again, did not ground his instructions in even Christian teaching. He grounded it in creation. So that, although there are not commands for how Google should be structured, you may feel when you're a female manager over male subordinates, you may feel kind of strange sometimes like giving them very direct instructions. Just might kind of feel, is this? And that may feel strange from a woman or a man receiving that. It may feel strange because of the creation order. And so we'll talk about that. How, how, do, women, how do women navigate the, the workplace in that way when there are female managers and male subordinates? And, and how do you as a, as a male subordinate interact? And so we're going to talk about all of that, but I just want us to see that Paul's grounding this in creation. Man's role has been given by God in the very order of creation to be a leader, and you see that bear itself out in history. You see it bear itself out in history. Men in relation to women and in comparison to women, by and large, 
possess greater natural assertiveness, nat uh, leadership ambition, and forwardness. Men are physically built differently than women and possess greater physical strength. By and large, okay, there are, again, there are exceptions, but this is generally speaking. Um, you can find exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule that men possess leadership qualities and physical characteristics in uh, relation to women because God's intentional and beautiful design. Men have been the leaders of kingdoms, institutions, companies, movements, and militaries for all of history, not due to patriarchal societal conditions, but due to God's design as men and women. And it just bears itself out in history. And I just did a little digging, a little bit, and I thought this was interesting to get kind of a contemporary feel for this reality. So, for example, in Fortune, uh, Fortune magazine, it said that uh, there's an article that said that Fortune 500 CEOs hits an all-time record for women CEOs. Fortune 500, so it's a group of 500 companies. And do you know how many women are leaders, or CEOs in those Fortune 500 companies? It's now at an all-time high. What do you think the number is? It's 38, right? And I don't say that, so one thing we'll make clear as we talk about manhood and womanhood, this is not to disparage a woman's competency. Women are highly competent. In fact, when you come to Titus 2, and it talks about men and how they're to instruct young men and how women are to instruct the young women, Paul gives uh, Titus one thing to tell the guys, one thing. Be self-controlled. And then he gives this long list of what the women are supposed to do because they're able to handle more than the guys apparently at that point in their lives. Okay? So we're not talking about competency at all. Women are highly competent. And listen, guys, you need to see the woman sitting next to you as highly competent, wise, able, and wonderful. Okay? So we're not talking about competency at all. We're talking about God's design. He's built it into the man to be the leader. So that's reference to current uh, workplace CEOs in the Fortune 500. And then um, among world leaders, the Pew Research Organization said this. Let's see here. Uh, quote, as nations around the world celebrate International Women's Day, the number of countries that have had a female leader continues to expand, but the list is still relatively short. And even that when women have made it to power, they are rarely led, they have rarely led for a long time. Again, I'm not saying any of these things to disparage women in these roles or women in general, just to point out that God's design is something that's, that bears itself over history. It, reality, as I like to say, will always rise to the surface. I didn't make that up, I heard it somewhere. But reality will always rise to the surface. Okay, and this is a reality that God has built into us, that he has designated men in relation to women to be leaders. And if they're good leaders, the women are going to be happy to follow that leadership, and they're going to flourish, okay, in the home, in the church, and so on. But the home and church are primary, or the places where God is primarily concerned. All right, well, we have come to the end of today's message. Next week, we are going to look at Genesis 3. Because if we're going to talk about manhood and woman, if we're going to talk about relationships, we have to talk about the fall. Because sin has made a mess of things. And uh, we've already alluded to that. So let me pray for us. And then we will be able to go. And you have till uh, 1030 to 
fellowship. And um, if you want, we could. I can pray and then for another couple minutes answer your questions if you'd like. If you had any questions, we could do that too. So let me pray and then we can do that if you like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for what you've created in male and female. God, I just pray that the men in this room would appreciate the women in this room and the women in this room would appreciate the men in this room, that there would be a gratefulness to you for creating male and female. God, you are wise, you are good. We should just be stunned at your goodness. Even despite sin, God, your goodness shines through in the created order. Um, help us to receive these words. Help us, those of us who have troubled backgrounds, to receive these words. Those of us who are having, even struggling inwardly, that we would receive these words. And I just pray that you bless this study and this class. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are free to fellowship. If you want to ask me a few questions, we can do that too for a couple of minutes. We just want to leave you enough time to be able to have a word with one another and then make it down to service. So, any questions you want to ask before you head out? James. I have a question about the word uh, images. Yeah. So, we ever made an image of God. Do you see any connection between the use of the word images um, and we are creating as images of God with regards to how it's used in the New Testament? How, like, for instance, um, Jesus Christ is called the image of the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we are also supposed to conform to the image of the Son. Right. Well, Jesus, the, the, the distinction between us and Jesus is that we are made in the image of God, and Christ is the image of God. So he is the prototype, or what's, what's the word that's even higher than prototype? He's the archetype? Thank you. Um, and so in that sense, he is, God is creating, you know, let us make man in our own image. He already has an idea of what that's going to look like, namely Jesus Christ. And so... He creates us, and now that we're redeemed, we are to be made more and more in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ as men and as, as women. And so that, in terms of what that means, it means our character, our, our desires, our worship are all being formed and shaped by God's Word and by God's Spirit to be more and more like Christ, who is that, that archetype. So... But that's that's the important distinction that we are made in God's image and Christ is the image. So, yeah, Paige. Um, so, image bearers versus made in His image. Like, I, I suppose you could say that every human then therefore is made in His image, but we are distinctly image bearers as Christians. Correct. So, every human, regardless of religion, yeah. is an image is is God's image. Yeah. In Christ, that image is being restored to its, well, I don't even want to say it's original, it's being turned, actually made something even greater than it, it originally, uh, we're, we're now conformed to the image of Christ, right? So heaven is not going to be the Garden of Eden revisited. It's actually going to be something better. So, um, but it is important to say that any human is God's image, regardless of their religion. And then when you are, uh, redeemed when you're saved, God is now renewing that image and restoring that image uh, back to what He had originally intended. So, um, 
we want to be careful to say both things because we want to be able to apply dignity to every human being, but we also want to say that there's something miraculous happening in the redeeming of men and women as well. Also, this will have an important this will have important ramifications for when we talk about being single and being fruitful and multiplying, because you might be thinking, listen, hey, I'm single. How can I carry out the calling to be fruitful and multiply? Actually, you're able to, and we'll talk about what it means to reproduce images. And in fact, you're probably already picking up on it. You can be fruitful and multiplying in, in, in creating images because you are involved in Christian ministry, in evangelistic ministry, and restoring that image in human beings. So. All right. All right, you guys, we'll have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll meet back here next Sunday. We'll pick up where we left off and we will keep going. And, and if you have questions, you can email them to me too. So feel free.